This call is being recorded. Talking to you from ELGL headquarters in Portland, Oregon, this is GovLove, a podcast about local government. I'm Kirsten Wyatt, the Executive Director of ELGL, and today I'm talking with Matt Crozier, the CEO of Bang the Table. Today, we'll learn from Matt about some of the best practices in civic engagement and also get some hints and hacks about how your local government can improve the way it communicates and encourages participation in local politics. Bang the Table has provided a lot of thought leadership, content, and information sharing with ELGL, and it's my pleasure to have Matt on the podcast today. Matt, welcome to GovLove. Thanks, Kirsten. So let's get started with one of GovLove's signature lightning rounds. What is the most annoying thing that people say when they find out that you're from Australia? <laughs> it's not so much what they say, it's, it's what they do. Um, Americans seem to love um, responding to finding out someone's from Australia by doing an impression of them. Um, <laughs> and i I got to tell you all, but you're not very good at it. And <laughs> it can be a little annoying. And actually, I'm originally from England. And so some people pick up the Australian in my accents and some people pick up the English. But the impression that I get back is exactly the same. Everybody sounds a bit like Dick Van Dyke from Mary Poppins. Um, and it's kind of fun. Do, do they, do they all, does everyone say the same thing, like the dingo ate my baby or put another shrimp on the Barbie? Or is it just different words? No, we get a lot of the shrimp on the barbie and the dingo eating the baby, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and for some reason, people seem to think that phrases like call blimey come from Australia, which kind oh. of amuses me. Okay. In fact, even the Outback Steakhouse seem to use phrases like that, which is kind of weird because um, it wouldn't take much research to work out that they're not Australian at all. <laughs> Do you ever eat at Outback? Never, no. But uh, one day I want to go there just to, to demand my money back after the meal, you know, for the, for the cultural appropriation that takes place. <laughs> so if you could be best friends with a celebrity, who would it be and why? <laughs> um, I don't spend most of my time sort of wishing to be best mates with celebrities, but uh, the first person to pop into my head is David Copperfield because I went to see him in Vegas once, which means probably he has a house there, which would be cool. Um, but also he made a car appear on the stage. And I think having a, a best friend who could make cars appear for you would be kind of useful. And what is your most controversial, non-political opinion? Uh, okay. Um, I, I suppose that depends on your view of non-political. I, I, I used to chair a housing authority, and I feel very strongly and passionately that, that secure and affordable housing should be a fundamental human right. Um, and living here, as I do in Boulder, Colorado, where you know I walk past half a dozen homeless people on my way to work every single day, um, I, I feel very passionately about that. But if that's too political, um, and I, I listened to uh, Kathy's podcast on GovLove a couple of weeks back, uh, where uh-huh. she uh, she was all for outlawing bananas, and uh, on the fruit theme, I absolutely would run for for uh, government on a platform of banning pineapple on pizzas. Um, oh, good. I think it's it's an appalling use of pineapple, which is delicious fruit, and, and it ruins all the other ingredients on the pizza. That I think that's a widely held ELGL opinion, so I don't think you're going to be alone in that. That's good to know. And my last, my last lightning round question is about Vegemite. Is it gross or is it amazing? It's completely gross. And just to pay some homage to the 
the my English childhood um, Marmite, which is the English version, is also completely gross. <laughs> so let's set the context for today's discussion by learning more about you and your background and your work history in citizen engagement. Can you tell our listeners more about your background and your work history, please? Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I came into citizen engagement almost accidentally, I guess, as a lot of people do. Um, I was an economist by education, and uh, and then I went on to do a graduate program at London Underground, um, where, among other things, I was their environment manager, and I, I ended up working on railway extensions. And so my first brushes with uh, citizen engagement were going out and talking to people about, you know, a five-year work site and a railway line going past their house, which was a, an interesting and kind of high-octane issue to, to get introduced to citizen engagement through. But I, I instantly loved it. I've, I've always enjoyed the sort of going out and, and having dialogue with people and trying to, as best possible, you know, within the framework of something's happening that they don't want, make it as palatable as possible for them. Um, and I moved on and did economic development work and infrastructure work, and I ended up running a, a um, regional office of the Department of Planning in New South Wales in a beautiful part of the state called the Hunter Region. Um, and in all of those jobs over sort of I don't know, 12 to 15 years of government, I'd have to pause to do the maths properly, um, I always ended up with in citizen-facing roles. And, you know, there wasn't a single problem I ever dealt with that couldn't have been better managed with better citizen input. So I became quite passionate about citizen engagement. Um, and after I left government, I worked for a while as a consultant and, you know, as an advocate for property developers and things. Uh, and again, citizen engagement loomed large. In these cases, you know, I, even the, these property developers, I could see that if, if they went in and built community capacity from an early stage, and some of them did, they got a much easier ride, not just through the regulatory process, but actually they fitted more neatly into their community and it, it, it led to better outcomes when it came to marketing their product. So I was always passionate about engagement and, and I was working, um, my consultancy grew from just me to me and a guy called Crispin Buttress, who I'd met while working in the government who is a lifelong passionate citizen engagement guy. His PhD was in citizen engagement. Um, and we kind of, um, I guess we were both running into this same problem, which was uh, that we'd have a really important thing we needed to talk to the community about. And the same four or five people would turn up to the meeting. Um, and, you know, they invariably represented the fringe uh, parts of the issue. The, they were, you know, essentially interest groups from the extremes of the issue from either side. We weren't hearing from many people in the middle, and, and all of our life experience before and since has told us that the people who sit in the middle actually tend to be more open to considering other views. They tend to be more open to change, um, and they tend to be more pragmatic rather than dogmatic about what they're thinking about. So we were talking about, you know, how we could get to more of these people. And it was Crispin came up with the idea of, of taking it online. This was 10 years ago um, when we first started the company. And it, it seemed like an interesting idea. Some of our friends and colleagues clearly thought we were completely nuts. But uh, <laughs> it, um, it, it seemed like an interesting idea. And we were lucky enough when we got started. And, and I should say neither of us are technical at all. We went and outsourced our development work at first. Um, and the guy we outsourced to later joined us as a sort of founding partner as our CTO, Karthik Reddy. Um, and we were really lucky in that first year or so that our, our networks in, in the government sector 
um, brought to us enough people that were prepared to give what we were doing a try to get some momentum going. Um, and, you know, it really just, just took off from there. It was sort of two years in, about eight years ago, I remember suddenly we, we stopped having to cold call and pester people and, and all of a sudden people were phoning us and, and it just picked up. Um, it was a, a wonderful experience and, and, you know, we founded our business based on the idea and with a mission to try and give more people a say in the things that are important in their lives. We're still deeply passionate about that mission and it's still driving the decisions the business makes. And looking back on that time that you were working in government and with government, um, you know, um, when you were getting started in those first kind of 10 years, um, what what citizen engagement projects really st- um, stuck out at you or kind of left the most lasting impression? Oh, yeah. Well, there were... <laughs> There've been quite a lot. So in our in our sort of foundation couple of years, um, I I remember writing a blog post called "Dogs, Lighthouses, and Railways." I think because they were the the big issues that had come up. But there were a few that that really stick in mind. There was a there's a city in um, Australia, Port Stephens. It's a beautiful coastal uh, area with sort of 300 resident dolphins in an inlet. Um, and they they were working with us, and they were doing a foreshore management plan. Um, and because back then we hardly had any clients, I went and sat down with the team and uh, and talked to them about the issues they expected to come up. And we ran a discussion forum for them, and they they predicted all sorts of issues about zoning. They were worried about back zoning some land, and you know taking away people's rights for a second dwelling on some of their properties. Um, and so we went to the community with um, a discussion forum based around that. And about halfway through their engagement process, somebody somebody popped up on uh, and put up a discussion topic saying, "You're removing the, uh, the dog walking area on on one of the beaches. Um, I can't remember the name of the beach now." Um, and we, the client, hadn't even seen this as an issue coming up. And a couple of hundred comments ensued within a few days, um, and it just sort of went off. And by the end of it, the the comments were, you know, dog walkers planning to invade the council chamber with their dogs. Um, now, fortunately, our clients were able to recognize the issue, respond to the community in place, and change the draft strategy, you know, really to, to turn it around very quickly because they were in there um, as a user and they were able to comment and reply to people and diffuse this this argument. But it was one of those really early cases that showed us that no matter how well um, well, you know, how close to the community a city might be. You can't always predict all the issues that might come up. These guys have completely missed this issue and it would have derailed their entire strategic planning process um, because, you know, the carnage of having, you know, pet owners protesting through the council chamber and thing would have made it all very difficult. They were able to, to pick it up early because they were engaging properly, um, to respond to it effectively um, and to move on and get their plan through. So that was a big deal. Um, the other one that comes to mind from our early year was um, was in my, my home city of Newcastle in Australia. Um, there's long been an issue in, in Newcastle uh, about a, a rail line that goes right into the city centre. And while most cities are actually trying to get public transport, um, the rail line in Newcastle was kind of unique in that not many people used it. And it, it ran as a spur between the city centre and the foreshore of the city, which is one of the biggest assets. Um, and it created this kind of almost... Well, I suppose almost ghettoization of, of part of the city by the rail line because you know nobody wants to sit out on the pavement and, and look at a big wire fence and trains going by. Um, and it had often been thought that if we cut the rail line 
um, by, you know, about a kilometer or half a mile uh, back to one of the other terminuses, then it would open the city to the foreshore. But I was warned when I went and ran the planning department in the area that this is an issue you must never touch because to save our rail group, um, we're able to turn out uh, 200 people to a public meeting at any moment. And of course, you know, those who, who spend their lives running public meetings will know that usually you get the four or five people, but occasionally you get 200 people in outrage mode. And that's not very constructive either. And to most of us who work in government circles, 200 people looks like a solid swell of community opinion. And uh, in our first year of running Bang the Table, um, the, the minister for the hunter, um, a lady called Jodie Mackay, um, came to us and said she really wanted to check in on on whether you know this this 200 people really did represent the community in the region. And so we ran an online engagement, and it remains the busiest discussion forum we've ever run. And you know now we have a network of moderators around the world who help us check on the comments. Back then it was me and Crispin doing it, and we were literally sitting pressing refresh on our computer minute after minute as the comments wow. came in. Local radio started quoting it on an hourly basis. I think it was like 2,700 comments came in in a couple of weeks, and it was it was a fascinating engagement to watch because. Sure, we, we heard from the 200 Save Our Rail people, and many of them left multiple comments each. Um, and then about halfway through, they started accusing uh, the whole thing of being stacked and, uh, and crooked. Um, and we went and looked at where the traffic was coming from, and it was fascinating because, you know, they were out there on an international train spotting website asking for people around the world to come and help them <laughs> win this debate. But despite all that they were doing, um, they couldn't outweigh the massive amount of people in the community who just came in and left one comment. And that comment was typically, please just get on with it. We've been debating this for too long. It's getting in the way of the development of our city. Um, and broadly speaking, we ran a little straw poll on the side. Um, and I think it was 24 uh, to 76, 76% in, in favor of some change. Um, and what was really interesting is after we closed the process, uh, the local research foundation did a, a stratified sample phone poll and got exactly the same result, I think, within a percentage point. And it was it really became the example of we changed government policy. That rail line is now no longer there. It's a long park with cycleway. Um, and it was a really good example of seeing, you know, a long-held um, a long-held obstacle or a long-held uh, belief in government that you couldn't deal with this issue. Um, and we turned it on its head simply by letting the people who wouldn't go to the meeting um, have their say online. And it, it really was, it kind of lit the touch paper behind our business, I think. So talk to me about how you approach a situation where, in this case, for example, you know, you have 200 people there's the perception that they're representing the majority, but then you also have a lot of substantive and important online comments that is closer to the, what the majority is actually thinking. How do you work with staff and also elected officials to not get overwhelmed by those really intense public meetings? How do you help them kind of keep their composure and also keep that perspective? Sure. The, the first thing I'd say, and, and, you know, I've given you the example of, you know, one of the most intense ones we've ever seen, but and more often you'll see 100 comments or 50 comments or whatever it might be. But the first thing I'd say is is context is critically important. Whether you're doing online engagement or face-to-face -face engagement, context is important. 
Nobody should ever be at a meeting or in an online discussion where they feel their goal is to win the discussion. Um, if you go to a meeting and you allow people to feel that because they're more of us than them, we've won, um, then you're never going to get a constructive dialogue going on. You know, the opportunity of citizen engagement is to say to people, is to almost depoliticise it, step away and say to people, we're going to engage you through whatever means. We want to hear from as many as you as possible. And we will send the results of our engagement to our councillors. And I think it is important that we have, you know, a democratic process and we have people who are elected to make the decisions. Because next to the citizen engagement input, they're going to have to consider, you know, expert opinion from engineers. They're going to have to consider the budgetary situation. They're going to have to consider a whole range of factors to make their decision. And so, you know, I always counsel clients that it's really important to set the context so that you don't have people who who feel they've got to win the argument in the place. People should be free to express their ideas and their views and tell their stories and share, you know, uh, you know, contribute in that way. And also, I think importantly in our society at the moment, particularly, people should be exposed to the other views and be invited to debate those views. Um, we don't get enough debate going on in our communities at the moment. People go off into the echo chambers of social media um, and don't often talk to each other. And actually exposing people to the fact there are contrary views and, and asking them to address those views and maybe work collaboratively on solving a problem can be you know, hugely valuable in a community. And so I think you know, if you approach um, engagement uh, properly, um, and you set the context well, you don't get into these situations where people are trying to win. And, you know, I told you one of our early projects where that was exactly what was happening. Um, that would have been a much more constructive engagement um, had it been, you know, setting the community some, some problems, um, demonstrating some challenges to the community and asking them to take a, a positive approach to how to resolve those problems. Um, now, sometimes you do need to just go and straw poll the community and, you know, typically I'd suggest these days, you know, I mean, we, we have eight tools at our platform and choosing the right tool is is a really critical element. And, you know, sometimes there's a case for a survey. If you do need to, to go to the community and kind of weigh the opinions, then that's where you deploy a survey. Um, if you deploy a, a discussion forum for that, then it's, and if your only intent, you know, with that information isn't to do anything qualitative, but just to understand yes, no, um, a discussion forum is kind of the wrong tool because you'll get a lot of heated debate and you're not actually digging into that, if that makes sense. It does. And, you know, I, I once had a boss who said, you never ask a question that you don't already know the answer to. Um, what's your take on that quote and this idea that when you are proposing kind of a bigger public project that you're not asking, should we do it? It's more of, you know, tell me more about how it should be done. Or do you think that that's absolutely the wrong approach? Um, okay, so the never ask a question you don't know the answer for, I think, Matt, I mean, I've heard that as well. Um, and I think it, it's rooted in a deep cynicism about the, the contribution that the community have to make on projects. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it, it, it's kind of sad. I understand where it comes from. Um, but absolutely, you you know, you will have an idea when you go to the community. But, you, you know, if you're not open to hearing change... Um, look, I, I worked with a city a while ago. Um, I won't name them because it was such a, a fraught project, but they wanted to talk to the community about uh, building an art centre in their city centre. Now, this was a, a small city with a large rural hinterland. Um, and they, I guess, you know, thought it was going to be a feel-good project. 
and they they got um, 800 or more contributions from memory, mostly absolutely uh, attacking um, that municipality um, for the fact that they were talking about building an art centre in the city centre where the large rural hinterland, their roads still hadn't been sealed and there was no maintenance and there were no services. Um, and for that organisation, it was a real wake-up call. And in fact, they, they restructured a lot of what they did based on that engagement. That was an engagement about an art centre and it just changed the nature of the entire city. Um, and I think that was incredibly valuable for them as an organisation. Um, it was very bruising for them, but also really valuable. And, and so I think, you know, when you go to the community, you actually, you need to be prepared to be surprised. Um, the example I gave earlier about Port Stevens and their dog walking, you know, they thought they knew the answer, but actually they didn't. And one of the reasons that engagement is so important is because your community knows a lot about your community. You know, they know a lot about the place, a lot about the people. And occasionally they'll have views or there'll be pockets of um, opinion there that are really valuable for you to know and to reveal early. Um, so I've forgotten the second part of your question. I, I got a bit carried away with the uh, don't engage about what you don't already know about. Well, and I, I, and I think it, it, you pretty much answered it. I mean, it, it's more about this idea of um, how you phrase that initial question to get people to engage in a way that actually is meaningful versus yeah. asking them the question that doesn't actually answer what you're charged with doing. And and so I think you got to that. And um, and I think it also speaks to that difference between doing kind of that straw poll, um, you know, doing like a check-in versus some full-fledged, you know, um, surveying where you really can kind of cross-section the results. Yeah, and, you know, we uh, those early examples I gave you of, of, of projects we dealt with, they, they were from an era where all we offered was discussion forums. And, you know, nowadays... Um, You'd, you'd, you'd use your tool mix, as, as, as you said. But I, I'd like to also just mention the assistant city manager at the city of Longmont in Colorado, Sandy Cedar, does an excellent, or did actually, at ELGL um, in Denver this year, an excellent conference presentation on what she called the flip. Um, and that's flipping issues positive. You know, there's not much value in going out to the community and saying, you know, oh, what do you think of the skies? You know, you're kind of bending over to be kicked. Um, where else, you know, the flip is about asking the community to solve problems. What are your ideas for improving parks and recreation in our city? You know, how do we solve the traffic problem we've got? And if you put those issues very positively to the community, not only are you less likely to get trolled in an online sense or, or in a face-to-face -face sense, but you're also, you're inviting them in. You're, you're not saying we're the experts, you know, we're going to do some tokenistic engagement. You're actually saying to the community, you have value. We want you to help solve problems. And if you go to engagement from the perspective of doing the flip on all your issues, um, then, you know, you're very well set up um, to actually have a positive dialogue that will add value to what you're doing. Do you believe that you can change the mind of a frequent flyer in local government, someone who is commenting on every single issue and, you know, finds little to no value in government services? Yes, I do. Yeah, I, I have to believe that, and, and I've seen it many times. Look, there are some people who are just irredeemably unpleasant. You know, we have a guy uh, <laughs> that we've been moderating for years in Australia who is a racist and, you know, deeply cynical, and there are ways to deal with those people by blocking their logins and things like that. But the vast majority of, 
of what I hear our clients before they start engaging online calling their trolls, you know. And actually, uh, sometimes these people are demeaned unfairly. You know, these people who turn up to the meetings now, who do the open mic every week or whenever they can, um, they're actually passionate about their community at some level. And what we've tended to find is that those people can be harnessed. Those people can be almost community facilitators or, or agent provocateurs. They're, they're, they're people who we've never had a really active discussion without them being there in space. You know, they want to answer everybody. They can be controversial. But as long as you set some clear rules around your discussion or your idea forming or whatever the process you're using is, um, and you moderate and enforce those rules, they pretty much learn pretty quickly what they can and can't get away with. And, you know, the most important rule in our moderation is you have to respect other participants, you know, no, no name calling, you know, stay on the issue, those sorts of things. And they get used to that. And then they're there pushing a point of view or asking questions and sometimes those people become incredibly valuable in the community. I think, look, most people that, you know, every city I ever go to, I say, you know, those four or five people who touch your meetings and they all roll their eyeballs and they know exactly who we're talking about. <laughs> but actually, most of those people are very well-meaning. And you give them the framework to talk to more people in the community and they actually get very excited about that. Um, so I, I feel very positive. Sure, there are some people that, you know, you'll never bring across, but actually... You know, I, I, I don't think those people should be, you know, in general, these people shouldn't be given up on because they're the ones who are actually prepared to put in for the community. So let's um, switch gears a bit and talk about your company and talk about Bang the Table. Um, where did the company name come from? <laughs> I always get asked that. You know, I was at a conference last year and one of my Canadian sales guys was uh, telling somebody a really intricate story about how it's to do with procedures of the British Parliament. And it was a great sales story, but it wasn't true at all. Um, <laughs> it, it, it really just came from, you know, you bang the table when you want people to listen to you. And we founded our business from the frustration that people feel out there because they're not being listened to. Um, and, you know, there was a little bit of needing to find a name with a URL that we could register everywhere in the world. Um, Ten years ago, the orthodoxy was, and it might be the same now, actually, that you had to have a, a one-word name that could become a verb like Google. Um, but when you sit down and try and make up a word, um, well, try it sometime. It's a, it's a ludicrous process. And, and <laughs> you know, um, for us, we, we, we ditched orthodoxy. We came up with three words that we felt, you know, spoke to what we were trying to do um, and also that would be memorable for people. And that's how we chose it. I, I wish the Parliament story was true because it's a much better story. <laughs> As you become a global company, what are the biggest differences in engagement techniques and approaches between um, the work you've done in the UK and Australia and then your, your time now in the United States? Yeah, look, I, I think um, the biggest thing I've noticed is that um, citizen engagement, um, as, as we view it, you know, giving people a chance to have a say on the issues, is much deeper rooted in the, the UK, Canada, or Australia than it is in the US. Um, it, it, it seems that, you know, as I, as I go around and talk to cities here, there, I, I far more often come across what I'd say is a bit of a, a reluctance to engage effectively. Everyone seems to do their, that, that open mic thing, which, you know, um, seems like a wonderful way to intimidate people to me. And, uh, and there's, you know, there, there's a, a, a fair bit of the, the tokenistic going on, but, you know, what, in the, the Commonwealth countries, as I'd call them, you know, Australia, Canada, the UK, citizen engagement is deeply bedded in legislation to the point that, you know, projects 
just don't get considered without that being reported on properly. And I don't quite see that same level in the US. I think it's emerging. And I think, you know, the, the practice of citizen engagement as an end in itself, you know, I think you guys um, highlighted recently that, uh, was it Roanoke, um, mm-hmm. had the first citizen engagement office that, that you'd come across in local government or something. Now, you know, you'd find them in, in just about every uh, local government of any size in some of those other countries. So I think the US um, maybe isn't doing as much, but then, you know, there is this deep-seated sense as well here of democracy. Democracy is much more important in the US um, than it is in those other places. And so democracy happens at all sorts of local levels. You know, all sorts of things are voted on, and there's a real um, celebration, I guess, of democracy in America as well. Um, And that makes it both easier and harder because citizen engagement, you know, shouldn't always be about counting the votes. And so... A lot of what we seem to do here is about talking about this level of engagement that isn't, you know, about getting people voting. And and so I think those are the key differences. Um, What I do see in common between all the places is that, you know, there's a rising tide. There's a rising realisation right across government in all the countries we operate um, that proper citizen engagement actually gets better results, gets better decisions, and actually makes the life of the government officers easier, not harder. I think it's one of the things that gets missed quite a lot. You know, I, I talk a lot to land use planners and some of them have been honest enough to say to me, you know, gee, I'm talking to five or six people now. Why would I want to talk to more of them? Um, and the answer is because the more of them have a different view um, and are more open to um, more open to new ideas and more considerate and actually will most likely reinforce the expertise of the planners in what they do. Um, and so this value of engaging with citizenry is, is definitely a rising tide everywhere we do business, which is, which is a nice thing to be able to report. Well, and, you know, I don't want to extrapolate too much from this example um, here in Oregon, but I, I know that there are some of the state law around um, engagement, record keeping, how people are noticed about meetings, things like that. It's so antiquated that it still mentions telegraph as a, as a way that you can um, adequately meet the noticing requirements, let's say, for a land use decision. How engaged um, has Bang the Table and you personally become in any sort of kind of um, bigger picture lobbying advocacy to say, you know, it's all fine and good for us to engage in different and, and meaningful ways, but if we're not meeting the letter of the law, it's not going to be the bare minimum of what we do. We're still going to continue to mail out paper notices that are horrible yeah. to read. And like, how, how are you engaging on that front, if at all? Okay, uh, gently would be the answer. I mean, for the one year I've been here, I've been very conscious of the need to spend some time learning and listening. And, and you know, you can't just rush in from another place and another culture and say, this is the right way to do things. And some of the stuff I'm learning here is actually adapting um, you know, the way I think it's good to do things and I'm sending that practice home. But um, I think we will get more involved. You know, there are peak bodies and I think, you know, IAP2 is one um, and I think ELGL is actually another and ICMA should probably be involved in this stuff as well. Um, There is a need to, you know, to, to look at these things. I mean, some of the, as you mentioned, some of the laws that are meant to protect the ability of people to have their say with the advent of technology are now preventing them. You know, I've come across an issue that, you know, some of our clients have pointed up here in Colorado where they're worried that, you know, some forms of online engagement might constitute a meeting and then need, you know, special notifications and things like that. So you've got these laws that were meant to protect people's ability to be involved 
that are now actually going to hold back people's ability to be involved. I mean, there are actually ways around those things. Um, you know, I, I would love to uh, start a bit of a campaign against, you know, the open mic as a form of engagement. I think it's critical that we get engagement outside the city hall. Um, one of the guys in my office has actually written an article that we'll, we'll put out at some point about, you know, if you sat down and tried to find a really intimidating environment for people to come and have their say, you'd probably design a council chamber. You know, the councillors sit above the community. The community have to stand up all on their own at a microphone. Um, it's almost designed to exclude people. I'm sure it hasn't been designed to exclude people, but but this is where we've ended up. And so, I, you know, I, I think the key message should be getting engagement outside the city hall. You know, pop-up town halls in places the community are comfortable. And, and the same applies online. It's about making it comfortable, making it less corporate, um, and allowing people to have their input. And then, you know, you end up gradually building more cohesive communities. Well, and I think this is a good segue into this next um, area that I want to get into, which is kind of the nitty gritty of successful engagement. And, you know, you you speak very passionately about this idea that a public forum or a public hearing, you know, can be intimidating and it's not the best way to collect a diversity of opinions. Um, and we know that technology has opened up opportunities for engaging with new communities who can't engage, um, you know, in that public forum setting. But let's talk about the digital equity issue and um, how that is in. Um, what type of research or information do you share with your clients um, about when we rely on online tools? Um, do we lose anything? How do we make sure that everyone has an equal playing field to access those tools? Um, some of those well, topics. Yeah, look, everything we're about is reaching more people. So the first thing I try and tell all clients is, do not ever use online tools instead of face-to-face -face engagement. You know, if you if you introduced online and you took away face-to-face, -face, you're you're kind of one step forward, two steps back. And you know, I think that's ludicrous. In fact, I think a key KPI for introducing online engagement in your community well should be people becoming more engaged and getting more attendance at your face-to-face -face events because face-to-face -face engagement is better always than online engagement. Um, which might sound strange coming from someone who sells online engagement, but I'd much rather sit in the room with a group of people and be able to interrogate them and get them talking to each other and solving problems, really deep diving, um, than have them in an online space for a while. And actually, online engagement, you know, we, we, we've pushed it a long way. You know, I mean, I said earlier, we've got eight different engagement tools. There are lots of methodologies. There's storytelling and idea sharing and all sorts of stuff. But it's not a good space, the online, for doing a real deep dive, you know, where you have one of those meetings where you get 10 community members around the table to, to talk about the pros and cons of different ideas and things like that and to really spark off each other and you get a dynamic going between them. As a facilitator, I'd much rather do that in person than online. So that's the first thing I'd say. This should never be instead of face-to-face -face engagement. And then within the online, there are a lot of things you can do. The first thing is to make sure it's mobile-friendly. If it works on mobile devices, it works on a smartphone, then you're covering a lot more of the potential community than you are if it's desktop. And in fact, you know, desktop, it's a difficult thing for a business like us. We have very attractive desktop sites. We have to because all our clients look at them on desktops. But the community are increasingly accessing these sites from mobile devices. And so mobile is becoming more and more important. Um, we're seeing the numbers sort of gradually creep up. We're at 30 odd percent now, and it'll be the majority very soon. Um, accessibility is important. Um, you know, we audit every three months to uh, WCAG guidelines, the World Accessibility Guidelines, compliant to a AA level. 
And that, you know, it sounds like a whole lot of jargon, but it's super important. It's not just important for visually disabled people trying to access your software. It's also really important for people with slow internet connections. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important for people who aren't very tech savvy and, you know, like to find their way around a site. So that whole user experience piece is really important as well for maximizing access. Um, and the final thing that I'd, I'd just say on the on this this issue of digital inclusion is that we're trying to make things better, not perfect. And so it is true that there'll be you know maybe ten to fifteen percent of your population who you'll never be able to engage online. Um, but I always ask people who raise that with me, how many people are you talking to now in your community? You know, you might be talking to what point zero one percent of the community. Um, and if by adding an online tool you can bring that up towards the sort of 10% mark, um, that's a great result. It, you know, it, so I, I think it's so important to have you know face-to-face um, opportunities out there. But we've got to recognise that where we're coming from is is very close to nowhere for a lot of cities in terms of the engagement work. And so what we need to do is take steps forward to be hearing from a broader cross-section of people and then gradually add to that. And as we add to that and build capacity in the community, we'll break down cynicism, we'll get better communication going on, and there's a chance to get the next 10% and the next 10% feeling actively engaged in the community. And I've heard you talk before about the value of not just having that conversation, but then following up and um, sharing what you learned and sharing what the decision was. Talk to us about how you advise your clients and customers on that critical follow-up piece, um, on making sure that they kind of close that loop and let people know what you did with their comments and participation. Yeah, do you know, it's one of the things that, that, our clients around the world do the worst, I would mm-hmm. say. And it frustrates yeah. me because it's super easy with, with online engagement to provide that feedback. So, you know, and so what I advise our clients to do is at the conclusion of a process, you, you archive the page, but leave it in situ. Um, if you think about it in terms of a web page or, or a web tool, archive the tool, leave it in situ so people can review and see that the engagement's taking place. And people who come along after you've closed it can still look at the documentation and get the facts. And in fact, for some major projects, it's also good to leave a a question and answer tool open so that if the community do have questions, they can ask you the questions. They don't go off to some corner of social media and get the answers from the wrong people. Um, And then, you know, at the end of the process, when you archive the page, you just replace the introduction or add add something to the, 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 the space that says, you know, this is closed. These are the next steps. Um, this is where we're going next with this. And then you can send an email out to everyone who participated, thanking them and giving them that information. And then when, you know, and obviously there's always some lag time, you either get to the next stage of your project or a decision process, um, you know, when the issue goes to the council, um, you can share the council paper. Um, you can share the council's considerations. Um, again, you can send an email to everyone who participated. So with the online space, it's really easy to do this in a way that it's a bit harder in the face-to-face space, although you can just take people's email addresses when they come into a meeting and send it to them that way. But if you take that time, um, which probably, you know, I imagine for most organizations, if you put aside half an hour a week to do that, um, then you've got a community that feels, oh, yeah, I contributed here. This is the decision they made. Now, they may not have done what I asked them to, but I can see that there was a process that took them from here to there, and that is of value, and that helps suspend cynicism that exists in our communities, Um, and it encourages people to come back and contribute again next time. 
Well, I think that's an important point, too, also in reminding people what the process was, because when you do have that, you know, 50% that isn't happy with the outcome or, you know, whatever percentage it might be, reminding them that it wasn't, um, you know, kind of a, a willy-nilly process, that there really was a plan behind it is a critical way to, you know, reinforce, like, you participated in this. It may not have gone the way that you wanted, but you know, here's the outcome and here's how you know that your comments were incorporated. Absolutely. I couldn't have put it better. So let's shift gears and talk about small cities. Um, a majority of U.S. cities have a population that is less than 25,000. Um, and I've heard from some folks who feel like um, it is prohibitive, cost prohibitive for them to employ a full-time communications person or a staff person who's dedicated to engagement. And so a lot of these tasks fall to the planners or the analysts who work for these cities. Um, What are some engagement hacks that smaller organizations could cobble together if they believe in some of these things we're talking about today, but can't afford a full-time staff person or even a program um, like Bang the Table? What are some tips or tricks that you have for them? The, the, the first thing I'd say is, you know, what I've found is that, I mean, we work, the smallest city we work with in the world is, is right here in Colorado. It's Snowmass, uh, population 2,000. 10% of the population is now registered and, you know, participating, okay. which is great result. Really happy with that. Um, and ironically, the largest city we work with in the world, New York, is here as well. But anyway, <laughs> that's not <laughs> relevant here. But um, we work with a lot of smaller cities and and. I think that success isn't so much predicated on budget as as you know that as recognition of the importance of engagement. Um, and you know, I'd suggest to run a platform like ours, you'd ask somebody to dedicate a couple of hours a week. Um, ought to be enough in most places. You know, some people really do the Rolls Royce and get involved far more and have someone working on it full time. But for a small city, a couple of hours a week. So you're not talking about needing a full time engagement person in order. Um, to work with it now, and uh, we do population-based pricing. But if you know, if you take a situation where someone genuinely can't afford anything, there's nothing in their budget, and they don't have a full-time person, I think what you'd look to do as as your hack, and this sounds very bureaucratic, I'm afraid, but is you'd look to have some consistency between the departments who are engaging. Um, mm-hmm. The first thing I'd say is get it out of the town hall. You know, get your engagement out of that that you know council chamber that, as I said, is a kind of intimidating place to do business. Go out into the community. You know, pop-up town halls are a, a wonderful idea, um, but there's a whole host of things you can do um, to be out there in the community talking to people where they're comfortable. You've got to keep in mind that, you know, uh, depending on the demographics of your community, a relatively small slither of the community feel comfortable getting up and talking in public. And so you want to sort of mix it up and get as much one-on-one engagement going as possible. I think social media is a really important part of the mix. Um because you can be listening there as much as anything. You know, you, mm-hmm. the, um, the, one of the challenges that I'm seeing people facing is there are so many places to be listening that they, you know, they get a bit overwhelmed, particularly if they don't have full-time staff. And what I advise them to do is to make it really clear, you know, this is our Facebook page, this is our Twitter page, we're listening here, we can't listen to all of what goes on out in your other community Facebook groups, so please, you know, come and talk to us here. I think it's better still if you can get them for more formal engagement that you want to analyse coming back to a central space that you own. Um, but making it really clear where you're listening can be can be really valuable. Um, and also putting some clear guidelines out of what to expect. You know, there's some bizarre stuff out there in the marketing world 
saying that on Twitter you've got to reply within half an hour. And if you're resourced to do that, that's great. Um, but if you're not, you can say, you know, this is our Twitter feed. We'll give you information from here and we'll endeavour to respond to you within a day or so or something like that if you contact us through Twitter. So setting expectations can be really important because if you try to do engagement, you know, without resources, but you don't set those community expectations, then that's just going to stoke frustration and cynicism in the community. Um, the other thing I'd say you, you should be looking at is is using your community. You know, within your community, there will be a number of advocates and organisers who, you know, can go out there and help you with this work. Um, so setting up a, a you know, a, a, a community staffed group to help you with engagement projects might be good. We've done, you know, had clients do some great work with um, community facilitators in the past, um, just getting prominent people from around the community to facilitate events, meetings, in, in our case, online forums and things. Um, which can, you know, really build up that sense of engagement. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I, I personally don't think size is an excuse. I think no matter what the size of – I mean, I did meet someone at a conference once who had a population of 200, and I, I was forced to admit to them they're probably better off, you know, shouting the bar at the local pub um, <laughs> than doing anything else. But, you know, for, for most, you know, anyone that's above a 1,000 or so, actually, you know, this is your core business. There's data out there that shows that that if, you know, the people rate the performance of their local government based, you know, they'll always say it's based on core services and back to basics and things, but actually revealed preference shows that it's based on how engaged they feel. Um, this is right at the core of your business and, and, you know, there needs to be some resource applied to it in order to do it well and properly. But I don't think that needs to be a full-time staff member and, you know, $50,000 IT contract, I think you can do an awful lot for a few hours a week and, and a much smaller amount of money. So the next thing I want to talk about, and this this relates to this idea of kind of knowing your community. And one thing that we're learning here at ELGL is how much value and support um, our members can get from their vendors and the communities that they serve. Um, and one thing that you have done a nice job of is building out your knowledge base um, from the customers that you serve. So talk to us about that. Talk to us about the network that you're building with your customers and how they're informing each other and their projects and the work that you do. Sure. Well, it actually started without us, which was kind of nice. So we discovered in Australia um, some years ago that there was a, a Bang the Table user group um, meeting in, I think it was down in Adelaide in South Australia. Um, and I think for the second meeting, they invited one of our guys along. And then, you know, these things started springing up and it was these, you know, communities of practice around online engagement, um, which, you know, is mostly us in Australia and, and people getting together and talking about how they're using the software and, and so we started attending these things, mostly to learn from them. Um, and, you know, there's not a thing we've learned about online engagement that we didn't learn from our clients. And so it seems like a very natural next step to try and serve that up and share through case studies, although some of our clients are nervous about being talked about publicly, so sometimes we have to anonymize a bit. Um, you know, if I give you an example, we did uh, some years ago, we were working, it wasn't local government, it was the national government in Australia. They were looking at a national disability insurance scheme um, based on the idea that, you know, if you become disabled in an accident, the level of care you receive shouldn't be predicated on whether you can blame someone and sue them or not. And the idea of a national scheme is everyone gets the same level of cover. Um, and they were talking to disabled people and their carers about, you know, what the features of this quite complex scheme might be. 
Um, and we worked with them using discussion forums at first, but the discussion forums were running hot. You know, people were in there and they were really intransigent and really opinionated and not really prepared to budge at all. And it was quite difficult. And somebody, I can't remember who, so I'll take the credit myself, came up with the idea of asking them for their stories. And we used a tool we call our guest books, so there's no discussion, to ask people to share their stories about, you know, their disability, their lives, their their lives as a carer. Um, and I'll never forget it. The very first story that came along was entitled, I Wish My Son Had Cancer. And it was from a woman whose son had such a dreadful disease for which there was no support network at all. But from where she sat, you know, the world of cancer where there were lots of support groups and things looked wonderful. And then, you know, what followed was another 297 stories from disabled people and their carers. And I've it was actually quite emotional just to moderate it and, and be involved. But, you know, it was just this outpouring from people who needed to tell their story. And for our clients, it was amazing. Suddenly they went from seeing people taking a position on issues to why they were taking that position. You know, basically these people were so passionate on the issue because it was life and death to them, um, quite literally in many cases. Um, and so, you know, we came away from that experience and went away and built a storytelling tool that now allows multimedia storytelling. I had never thought really about building a storytelling tool until we went through that with one of our clients. And now it's one of the more used tools in our, our kind of repertoire. So, you know, the learning always sits out there. It's a two-way thing. Our business has been built on on the innovations of our clients. And it's, uh, it's only a fair quid pro quo that we try and share those back whenever we can. So we write guidebooks and things like that and they're they're all available under Creative Commons, so people are welcome to take them, reproduce them, um, do anything with them. We, we just, you know, the part of our aim is to make sure that people, you know, are learning from the best practice that's out there. And you know, I, I, you know, I love it when I get together with my competitors and they share their best practice too, because you know, um, online engagement's been around for at least ten years. Um, you know, the guys at MetroQuest have told me they've been doing it longer, but it, it's been, you know, it's been done for over a decade now. And the days when you should be able to just throw up a message board that looks like it came out of the 1990s or, a, you know, just a, a one-off survey and sort of dust your hands and smile and say, we did our engagement, they're gone. It should be about practice. It should be about actually providing the community a real opportunity to have a real say um, rather than just tokenism. And, and so I'm... I, one of the things I hope by uh, sharing what we think is better practice out there is that, you know, we can create a, a, a vibrant space. There's a lot we can do with technology and there's a lot of innovation still to come. Um, and, you know, I'm really happy to have been, you know, able to be part of it for, for the, you know, the last 10 years and looking forward to the next 10. Um, we'll always try and share what our clients are doing. If you could wave a magic wand and solve one local government engagement problem, um, what would it be and why? Oh, it'd probably be getting the word out there. Um, something all of our clients struggle with, which is kind of funny because nearly all of them have a communications department that are quite good about putting out media releases and getting stuff out there on social and things. But our clients really struggle at first getting the word out about engagement. Um, and, you know, uh, because of the approach we take where each engagement adds to your database and you can send out newsletters, it's only really a problem for that first year. Um, once you've got a thousand or more people in that database, you can always bring them back to engage on different projects and it gets easier. But that first year, it's really hard work. And, and it's, it's astonished me. And this, this isn't about America. This is about the whole world. But one of the things that, that cities find difficult 
is connecting with their community to get them to come and talk about something. And, and you know, it, it's quite amazing when you think about it that that, that is still a difficult thing. Um, part of the trick, of course, is is fra- framing what you want to talk about in a way that actually sounds interesting to the community. But part of it is simply letting them know the opportunities there. And it's something that, you know, we're trying to work on through both technology and practice to help our clients with. Um, but I think it sits out there as almost, you know, the, the biggest problem. Well, and some of it is, you know, the the urgency often is not there. And so people take for granted the period of time in which they should comment or participate. Like they don't realize that a project that's being talked about today is going to affect them, you know, a year from now. And so it gets, I mean, it it is tricky to time it up and to make it work with your day-to-day schedule, which again, you know, to me speaks to why you need to have a an online or digital component to all of your outreach and engagement. Look, I, I can't disagree with you there. Yeah, I think, you know, I think often what cities want to engage on are set-piece strategies that have large budgets, you know. So often it's, you know, here's our community management plan or our citywide plan or whatever it might be. And those things are quite bureaucratic, you know. And if you're a land use planner, you know, you might want to do your land use strategy. But you've probably gone to university for four years to learn how to do that. And most of the community haven't. And so, you know, it becomes that the, the cities are resourced to talk about these bureaucratic, very necessary, but, but essentially bureaucratic constructs. And the community want to talk about the big building on the corner or the extra garbage can or whether the library is going to be open on Saturday. And so some of what we try and help our clients to do is to dig into these things, because within these plans, there's always a, a ton of really interesting issues buried in there and bring those issues up to the forefront. You know, if you want to see a good community response, talk about waste management, talk about the roads, talk about, you know, what you're going to do with the parks and you will get a great community response. Um, but if you talk to them about a document, you'll get much less of a, a response. And so, you know, what we're trying to do is provide an environment where at no additional cost you can engage on the little things and that will build you a picture to help inform your strategic plan or whatever it is you're doing. Um, it's, it's, it's hard work, though, but, you know, I, when people crack this, it's, it's well worth doing because you, you end up sitting on a, a much stronger database of knowing where the community's at on issues. Yeah, absolutely. And then, again, that database can be used for so many other purposes down the road, whether it's reminding people of, you know, trash pickup day, you know, that changed, or if it's, you know, letting people know they can register for, you know, spring activities in the rec department. I think that you overlook, you know, the the importance of having a really strong list like that. Yeah, do you know, we've got a client in Canada that – um it's the city of Niagara Falls who launched a site recently. And in it, they've got a shout out for our staff section where people can fill out a simple survey form and, and you know, give a thumbs up to their staff. I, I think it's just a wonderful little innovation that, you know, a last time I looked, there was one endorsement had come in. I think it might have been about snow clearing or something. But it's, it's a nice little innovation that feels good for the community and feels good for the team. And, you know, I think there's all sorts of stuff you can do once you get into the online space that that actually, you know, continue the conversation and let the community in a little bit more rather than just those big set piece strategies. Yeah, absolutely. So last question, it's a tough one. If you could be the GovLove DJ, what song would you pick as our exit music for this episode? <laughs> Well, I hope it's not seen as meaningful, but you know, I'm a I'm a huge fan of the Smiths, which probably ages me quite a lot. So, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm going to have to go for Cemetery Gates by the Smiths. All right, we'll have our producer Ben Kittleson um, work on that for when this episode airs. 
I want to thank you for coming on and talking with me today. Um, a great discussion as always, and I'm really excited to see you in Detroit. Yeah, look, thanks so much for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it. And I'm looking forward to Detroit as well. Dove Love is hosted by Ben Kittleson, Kent Wyatt, and me, and it's produced by Ben Kittleson. For our listeners, you can reach us at elgl.org backslash govlove or on Twitter at govlovepodcast. And we're on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play Music. Please subscribe to GovLove through your favorite podcast service and leave us a review so more people know that GovLove is the podcast for local government topics. And if you leave us a five-star review, we'll send you some ELGL swag. If you have a story idea for GovLove, we want to hear it. So send us a message on Twitter or email ben at elgl.org. Thanks for listening. This has been GovLove, a podcast about local government. <music>